I think it's incredible. And I'm so proud of you, community of faith. Uh, the way that we do things is so different as we send so much of our budget uh, all around the world to make a difference. We're going to talk about why. Wednesday night was incredible. God came down. I don't know if I've ever felt him like that ever in my life. If you missed it, you want to be start coming on Wednesday nights for our prayer meeting, but also next, uh, the very first Wednesday of every month, we celebrate right here with the whole praise band, and it was just incredible. And I've told you that I've sensed a, a fresh wave of God coming in that is like a, I think it's gonna be like a tsunami, you know? And it's just gonna overwhelm us. And I want you to experience it. I want you to be a part of it. It was, it was so good Wednesday night that when it was over and the band finished, nobody left. Everybody just kept waiting. See what God was going to do next. Some people that were there that were far from God and had really never been in church before, one came up and said, I've never experienced anything like that. In the middle of all that, I just said, Jesus, I give you everything right now. And then he said, can I be baptized? Oh, yeah, for sure, right? God is moving. But, you know, when God comes down in power, there's going to be something that characterizes us. We're starting a new series. It's called One Another. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. Because you see, a lot of people think when when God comes down and it, it's this really vertical thing that happens, us and him. And there is that that happens. But God wants it to be so much more. And that's what we're going to see the key to that this morning. You know, we have a problem in Houston. Have you noticed? There's more and more atheists in Houston. The younger generation are calling themselves the new atheists, a lot of them, coming up even in our, our middle schools, in our high schools. You know, when you do a census of Houston now, more people check when it says religion, they check the box, none, than ever before. What's going on? What's happening? Church attendance across the board is declining rapidly, especially with, with the like the 25 and under crowd. You know, as I was thinking about that, it, it, it's like most people I talk to, they, they love Jesus, they, or they are interested in Jesus at least, but they have a problem with the church, you know? And I started thinking, it's kind of like saying, you know, I really like you a lot, but I don't want to be around your body at all, you know? That would be a little bit strange, wouldn't it? But there's a reason for that. There's some things that we've gotten away from. When I look back at the first century, the church in the first century, it was explosive. It was dynamic. I mean, think about this little, seemed like a cult to the Jewish people and for sure, Rome paid no attention to it. It was kind of born in the armpit of the Roman Empire, you know, and the leader of it was crucified. You'd think that would be the end of it. And yet, three centuries later, Christianity dominated the globe. Even Rome became officially Christian, the very one that had in the first place, you know, been persecuting, the one that were part of, responsible for killing Jesus. 
what happened? Why did it happen that way? What was going on? What was so attractive about this? I want us to dig into that just a, a little bit because, you know, even, even some of the most atheistic, agnostic philosophers and historians have tried to figure out how did Christianity get to be this way? British author Karen Armstrong, who's no friend to Christianity at all, sums it up this way. Against all odds, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We still do not really understand how this came about. It's true. They don't understand how this came about. And I think that we've lost a big part of what that was. And that's why we're not, you know, I spent almost all of my life trying to make the church interesting again, attractive again, but less people are interested than ever before. Less people are attracted than ever before. Let's get back and let's see what Jesus said. Let's see what his followers said. Let's see what happened to make the church so amazingly attractive to that whole wide world around them so that it exploded. Let's look at a few scriptures. One of my favorite prophecies is found uh, when Jesus uh, talks about the church. And we see that in Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Let me just read it to you. He came to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And here's what they said. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah are one of the prophets. Basically, they're saying, yeah, it, you're, maybe you're just kind of continuing this Old Testament thing. It just keeps coming down through. And then he says, but what about you? And of course, Simon Peter is gonna answer. Who do you say that I am? Simon says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus predicted us. He said, I'm gonna build something. And when he said that, it wasn't built yet. He said, I'm gonna build it. I'm gonna do something. I'm going to build my church. Now, I think one of the things that happened, and from the very beginning, we kind of got off base because of that. And in, in most of the, the New Testament, when you read it, it's written originally in Greek, and it's translated into English. But when Jesus said the word church, that's an exception. It wasn't translated. It was interpreted in a way, because about the second or third century, as they were uh, looking back at some of this, the German word Kirch had become really popular, and it was the building that people met in that were Christians. And so when Jesus said this word church, he used the word ecclesia. And the word ecclesia doesn't mean a building. It doesn't mean a church building. In fact, Church is, you wouldn't even find that. Ecclesia simply meant an assembly, an assembly of people gathered together for a specific purpose. An assembly of people that gathered together, not even a, 
It wasn't even a Christian thing. It was just an assembly of people that gathered together for a specific purpose. What Jesus said is, I'm gonna build my people, my people, my assembly, the ones that gather around me. I'm gonna build that and it's gonna be so explosive. These people are gonna be so explosive with power that even the gates of hell can't overcome it. And it's this amazing thing because they didn't need a building. In fact, there weren't buildings that they met in in those early days. Did you know that for many, many decades, they weren't even called Christians? Their enemies named them Christians. Did you know that? The people that followed Jesus, they said, we follow the way. They just called it the way, the way. We are part of the way. We're following this Jesus. We are the way. We are part of the way. And, and so it was kind of like this thing that just, it was more contagious in that day than COVID-19 in our day, you know? It was like this airborne thing. It didn't need a building. It was just like going crazy. The ecclesia of Jesus. He wasn't predicting that he's gonna build buildings. He said, I'm gonna build a people. And listen to what the early church father Tertullian said. When he penned these words, Rome still had bodies hanging on crosses, but the ecclesia of Jesus was flourishing. He says this, what shall I say of the Romans themselves? They fortify their one empire with garrisons of their own legions, but they're having trouble. They can't extend the might of their kingdom beyond these nations that they've already gone to. But Christ's name is extending everywhere, believed everywhere, worshiped by all the above enumerated nations, reigning everywhere. How? How did this, how did this happen? Well, let's listen again to some of the words of Jesus. He had gathered and he was teaching and there were a couple of religious groups that were against him from the Jewish people. The Sadducees, the Sadducees were pretty liberal. They didn't believe much of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe that there was life after death. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees were really conservative, strict. They believed every word, you know, and um, both of them had really come out against Jesus. So, so the Sadducees had tried to trick him with some questions, and, and, and so it didn't work, never did work. So then the Pharisees thought, well, let's get together, and let's see if we can trick him. So hearing that Jesus had silenced, you can read this on the screen, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This comes out of Deuteronomy. But then he blew their mind with something that they had never heard. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This comes out of Leviticus, and no one had ever put these two together before. And when 
scholars that study Greek said when he says the second is like it, it means that actually it's part of it. Actually, it's a greatest command too. The greatest commandment is love God, love your neighbor. They go together. It's not less in importance. It just comes second in order. So when he says the second, it comes second in order. He even goes on to say all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Second greatest, almost as great as the first. That Actually, it is. And, the, and um, all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. The law and the prophets are what the Jewish people called their Bible. All of it. In fact, like, so what is he saying? He's saying, you know, the big 10, all of that. If you will just do what I'm getting ready to tell you, the greatest commandment, you'll cover all of it. All of it hangs on this. All of it is about this. One Greek lexicon puts it like this. As a door hangs on its hinges, so the whole Old Testament hangs on these two commandments. You see, if you had asked a first century Jew, how do I show my love for God? They would have said, obey his commands. I think if we ask a lot of Americans today, how do you show your love for God? They would say, obey his commands. But when they asked Jesus, he said, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Jesus turned it. It became horizontal. Vertical love was manifested through this horizontal love for our neighbors. In fact, let me read another thing. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus is with his disciples. It's the last night before he dies. Judas gets up. He's got to run some errand for some reason, right? He's headed out. He slammed, The door slams behind him, and the disciples go, where did he go? He didn't even finish his food. What's up with this? Something really bad is getting ready to happen, really. A, a nightmare is getting ready to take place, but they have no idea. But Jesus knows. And if he's going to say something important, it's time to say it, right? So here's what he says. He says, guys, listen, if you don't remember anything else, listen to this. A new command I give you. Love one another. So he took love and he made it a verb. And then he said, it's action and I want you to do it. And not only is it a verb, it's a command verb. This is a command. When he says it's a commandment, he's not kidding. He's saying, love one another. It's in the imperative tense, which is the command form. And then he goes on and blows their mind. How do you do that? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then he goes on the very next day and shows them what that love looks like, dying on a cross. You see, those early disciples, they, they didn't follow Jesus and give their lives for Jesus because of the great authority that Jesus had or the position that he held as God. They knew he was God. But you know why they gave their life? Because they had felt his love. They had felt how much 
he loved them. He said, as I have loved you. Now we think of the cross when we think of that, but the cross hadn't happened yet. So just imagine those disciples, there's Matthew. I remember how he loved me. I was a a tax collector. None of my people, they hated me. They would spit on me because I was serving Rome. And and I, I just, I was rich, but it was empty and I couldn't figure out what I needed. And along comes Jesus and I'm listening to him. And all of a sudden one day he looks right at me as I'm sitting at my tax table. And he says, Matthew, he knows my name. Follow me. And I remember getting up and leaving everything and following him. And he's loved me. And it's changed everything. Nathaniel's there. And he goes, I remember how he loved me. I came and said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I kind of dissed his whole town, his, his friends, his whole lineage. And he loved me anyway. And he's changed my life. And so we, we see these, these disciples, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And Jesus didn't anchor this whole thing that we're to do to like even scripture. He said, as I have loved you, he anchored it to himself. As I have loved you, you're to love one another. And then he said by this, everyone will know. When, when you see the word this, it's a demonstrative pronoun. Do you remember that from English? I try not to remember English, right, uh, in school. But demonstrate, it means it, 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 it stands for something. What does it stand for? Just one thing, how you love. How you love. Remember, his primary concern was not that they believed something. See, I think a lot of people would say, I'm a Christian and you can know it because of what I believe. And then we argue over our beliefs and we try to, you know, talk people into our beliefs. And first century, they didn't do any of that. Now they knew what they believed, don't get me wrong. They knew that Jesus was the son of God. They knew that he had died for their sins. They had received that gift that he gave them on the cross. That changed everything. <clears throat> but they didn't argue with anybody about anything. They just loved people. They loved the people around them. Jesus said the litmus test for being a a bona fide Jesus follower was not the ritualistic Sabbath, you know, bring your sacrificial goat to church kind of thing, which the Jews thought it was. He said, doesn't, that's not what I'm, I'm doing all of that. I've replaced it. I've fulfilled it. What it looks like now is that you love one another. Jesus' love for the men in the room rather than his authority over the men in the room is what leveraged them to be all that they became. How they said, I'll give my life away too because of how much he loved them. Paul, in writing about this, and you remember Paul, he was really religious. He was a, he was a, a Jew a Roman citizen, but he was a Jew. And he was thinking he was helping God by killing off all these people that were following the way because it was a cult and it was wrong. But then one day, as he's on his way to Damascus to kill some more Christians or the followers of the way, God meets him on the road and a light shines down on him. And it's Jesus himself. 
And he says, I love you. I've got a plan for you. You're persecuting me when you do this to my body. And Paul's whole life began to change. And listen to what he says in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. So he's talking about all the Jewish laws, right? All the ways that God had met with the Hebrew people and said, here's what I want you to do so that you can know me. And it was seemed very vertical. You tried to obey these things. And, you know, so a lot of people would say, you know, I really want to know God. And if you're a guy, I want, I want to be a Jew. And, and what do I need to do? And then they would tell you what you needed to do. It was right there. Circumcision. And you're going like, maybe I don't want to be a Jew. I don't know for sure. But Paul says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Notice Paul didn't say the only thing that counts is faith. That's how I grew up. You gotta have faith. If you just have faith, it's all about faith. Very vertical, you know? That's not what he said. The only thing that counts is that you have faith, but how's it gonna show itself? Through love. That's how anybody's gonna know. That's the only thing that counts. Faith expressing itself through love. A lot of faith, my faith didn't feel like I had to love people. In fact, a lot of times I just judged people. You ever done that? That's not what we're to do. He didn't say, and I want you to judge the world right now, judge everyone around you, you know? And that's what I see a lot of Christians thinking it's our job, you know, like we've got to judge all these people out here. They should act more like Christians. But they're not Christians. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love them. Just love them. Just love them like Jesus loved us. That's, that's pretty big, right? Paul, he said, what is it going to look like? And, and basically, he just kind of wrote out some things in his letters that what Jesus meant when he said, love like me. He said, I want you to forgive one another. Because that's what he did, right? He said, well, where did you get this list, Paul? From Christ. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Are you holding a grudge right now? You call yourself a believer, but you've got someone that you just, I'm not letting that go. I could never let that go. Do you know how big that, have they, have they crucified you? Because see, Jesus was on the cross and he looked down and he said, Father, forgive them. And when he said that, he was speaking all the way through to us because it's our sins that put him on the cross. And he's saying, forgive one another. That's one of the one another's we're gonna look at. Encourage one another. The world around us, man, they're pulling courage away like crazy. Discourage. We should be a place that when people come and they're anywhere within 10 feet of us, they leave and they go, he put courage, she put courage in me. Woo, I'm ready to go. I can do this. I can make it. Restore one another. What do they do in most churches? Oh, you failed, you sinned, <laughs> right? We'll just have to put you down like a bad horse with a bad leg. No, that's not what you do. Restore one another. Submit to one another. Wow, that's, that's, 
Did you know that it says that men and women are to submit to one another in marriage? A lot of preachers I know, they like to pull the one out where the woman submits, right? But we're to submit to one another. Can you imagine what marriage looks like? And, and it's not just words. One guy said to his wife, I die for you. And she said, you're always saying that, but you never do it. <laughs> what does it look like to die for her on a daily basis, right? Accept one another, care for one another, bear with one another, carry one another's burdens. Imagine a world where people skeptical of what we believe were envious of how well we treated each other. A world where people said, you know, I don't really understand that, that group of people at all. But I, I mean, I want them to work for me. I want them to be my neighbor. I want them to be around me. I just want to be around them. Once upon a time, it was so. That's what happened in the first century and the second century and the third century. Once upon a time, the one another culture of the church stood in sharp contrast to the bite and devour culture of the world. Just like we're talking about here with what you guys have done, pulling these little children out of sex trafficking. You know, in the first century, infanticide was legal. In fact, it was not only legal, it was expected a lot of times. They found an old letter from a husband to his wife, and she was almost ready to deliver, and he's in another town, so he writes this letter to her, and he goes, so excited about this delivery. If it's a little boy, take good care of it. I'll be home, and we'll name it. If it's a little girl, expose her. What does that mean? That meant they would take the little girl, and they would put that little baby down by the riverside and leave it. And if they said that's not murder because if the fates want that girl to live, the crocodiles won't eat her. The wild animals won't eat her. She won't die of exposure. Well, they died every time. Yeah, well, it's not, you know, they weren't destined to live. You know what the Christians did? They would go down there and pick that little girl up and bring them into their very own homes. And they were so poor, they could hardly feed their own kids but they raised all those little kids to the point that the whole of Rome over a period of three centuries got so ashamed of it because of how the Christians acted that Constantine in the third century outlawed it. And Valentinus, one of the other emperors, he, he, he actually made it a capital offense later. They changed the whole idea of how Rome thought. What was true then should be true today. His, Paul's one another list, it should epitomize who we are. You know, can I just tell you a little secret? Everybody wants to be one anothered. That's not really a word, but get it? They want what I'm talking about. People are longing for unconditional love out there. Maybe you're here and you're feeling that. We're not perfect, but we're starting to learn. We're starting to get there. See, I want us to be ready because God's spirit is gonna come down on us. I told them Wednesday night, I said, this was a taste 
a tiny taste of what's coming. And I mean, miracles were happening in the midst of that. Nobody was standing up and blowing on people and blowing them over or anything like that. But God was moving through that as people were praising him. And I mean, people were healed and spiritually and mentally and emotionally. I was watching it happen. But that's not so that we can say, hey, come and and see how great things are going here. We must be really special to God. If we do that, it'll just kill it. God's saying, I'm coming down on you so that you can love everyone around you. Even those really hard to love people at work or at school. Everybody wants to feel included in a community characterized by one another love. And, you know, I, I, just, I, I just think that God's got something so big here for us. If we could just grasp it, what would happen in the church? What would happen ultimately in the world if we oriented our lives, our marriages, our friendships, our professional relationships, our finances, our time around this inescapably simple command but this all-encompassing question, what does love require of me? It moved the needle once. I think it can move it again. Listen to what John said. He was called the apostle of love. He was one of the only disciples that wasn't murdered for his faith. And he lived to be an old man. And when he was in his 90s, which was really old back then, and he couldn't walk anymore, they would carry him into church on a blanket and he would be laying there and he would prop himself up on his his elbows and he would preach and his sermon was one sentence. Every single time he would say in his voice that was fading, little children, and they would all lean in because this was John who walked to Jesus, little children. Love one another. Don't you wish my sermons were that short? I mean, it would be like amazing. You know, you'd already be at the restaurant. Listen to what John said in his, in his little book of 1 John, chapter 4, 7 and following. He says, my beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. You know, when people come and they tell me, well, I I just believe God is a God of love, I say, how do you know that? Well, I just know that. Well, nobody knew that before 2,000 years ago. No one ever said God is love. God is a God of love. Look back at all of the old religions. Look at the ones that have even carried through. They don't say God is love. God is a judge. God is, you know, powerful. God is omnipotent. Or God is like nirvana or something, this cosmic force. No, Jesus is the one that said God is love. He said, I've come to tell you what God is like. I'm God. And I love you. He loved you so much. He sent me here to tell you he loves you. The only way you know that God is love is because Jesus said it 2,000 years ago. 
God is love. He goes on, so you can't know him if you don't love. If anyone boasts, I love God, and and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. And he goes on and he says, if God loved us, we ought, we ought to love one another. And most of us, because of our traditions, when we see that word ought, it feels real religious, you know? It's like, okay, we're compelled to do this. This is an obligation that we have. But when John used this little word ought, the way he used it was totally different. He said, Christian, you ought to love like fish ought to swim in the sea. You ought to love like birds fly in the air. Birds ought to fly. Fish ought to swim. You ought to love. You ought to love like peaches are sweet. That's just who you are. That's who you are. If you know God, that's who you are. And it's so interesting when he says love is from God. He's not saying that love is from God like letters are from a mailman or even letters are from a friend. What he's saying is that love is from God the way heat is from fire, the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God. Love is God's. And God is love. And when he comes to live inside of us, there ought to be. Not because, oh, I need to do this. I need to grit my teeth and do this. No, there just, it becomes this natural thing because he lives in us. And it rearranges everything, all the way down to our finances, where we give sacrificially for people we don't know on the other side of the world. I love that God is like that. That's the very nature of who he is. And that's what should characterize us. Beloved, he would say, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. But ought is this just, I mean, it's not compelled. It's just, this is what it is. It's who we are. It's so interesting as he wrote all of these things that he became that guy that just always preached love and power through love. You know, in the Korean War, I I read this. A guy shared, he was a communist officer for North Korea in the Korean War. And um, he he, he said, I did some terrible things. One man who was a believer, I was determined, you know, we had captured his village. And so I ordered him to be shot. And then I found out that he ran an orphanage and took care of a lot of little kids. And I said, wait, don't shoot him. We, you know, he's doing something good for people. So take his teenage son instead and shoot him. And they shot his 19-year-old son right in front of him. 
He said, later on in the war, I was captured. I was put on trial. I was condemned to death. But then the man whose son I had shot stood up to the judge and he said, judge, please don't kill him. Let me take him home as my own son. And I, he's just a young man still. And he's got a lot of ideology that's confusing. And let me finish raising him. And that young communist officer said, I'm a pastor today because of what that man did. Love one another. Now, you can only do that in the power of God, right? Otherwise, you just want people to get what they deserve, and they don't deserve much. Neither did we. But look at what he did for us. See, he's going to come upon us in a powerful way in these next few weeks and months. I've got the staff every time we meet together saying, it could be today. It could be today. Every So you can start saying that too because I want us to build this sense of expectation. We said it before Wednesday night. On Wednesday nights at prayer, this we're not having music or anything. It's just Laura and me, and we're praying. See, prayer is the work. Anything else we do is just gathering up the results. If I want to see me work, I don't need to pray. But it isn't going to be very good. You might say, wow, that was a motivational sermon, but you're going to go home and forget it in about 10 minutes. But if I have you praying for a message like this, it's going to pierce all the way to the very soul of you. And you're not going to be able to get away from it because the Holy Spirit's going to just keep bringing it back and bringing it back and bringing it back. And what he's saying is community of faith, love one another. Love the world around you. How? The way I loved you. That's impossible, God. No, it's not impossible because I have come to indwell you. When you stepped into being a believer, Jesus' spirit came to live inside of you. And he wants to live out through you this week. And if you don't see it, if you don't see it, if you don't see it, are you a believer? It's not what we mouth. It's seeing God in action in our lives. Do you want it? See, I don't really have, I'm not gonna like give you a, a, a bunch of homework today. I usually do. I have only one thing. I want you this week to get alone with God and say, do I really want that? Am I really willing to do that? And then I want you to look at your relationships. Are you holding a grudge against someone? Or you don't know what they did to me? You know what? I've heard a lot of your stories. Horrible things. Awful things. I'm not excusing them. I'm not excusing them. What was done to you was horrendous. But God's going, let me have it now. Let me have it. Give it to me. You love the world around you. 
That doesn't mean you invite people back into your life that are destructive. That's boundaries. That's a whole different thing. But it means that we forgive and we love and we care. Can you imagine what that's going to look like this week at the office? So before you get into work, probably while you're on 290 driving in and you see the guy in the HOV with only himself, you know, you don't flip him off this week. Maybe you just pray for him. Lord, I pray that he'll have a wreck. No, not a wreck, you know. Some of the things we pray, I pray that there's a policeman on the other end of that HOV justice. No, just begin. If someone cuts you off, pray for them at work. Holy Spirit, I need you to do this. This can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. But as he comes on us, he wants it to begin to spread out. And as that happens, it's going to come more and more and more. And one of these times that we get together, so don't miss, one of these times we get together, it's going to be the time. What does that look like? I have no clue. Whatever God wants it to look like. But it's not going to be about a person. And it's not going to be about us. It's going to be about him and the world around us. Would you just close your eyes with me for a minute? Maybe right now the Holy Spirit's just kind of tapping you because you are a believer. He goes, you got to let that go. You got to forgive that person. What does that look like? It just means laying it at Jesus' feet, letting him take care of it. You quit worrying about it. A lot of times, he's going to take those people through some really tough times. He said, I'll take care of it. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay. Not yours, mine. Little children. Little children. Little children love one another. That's going to change some of your marriages this week. You're going to have to get into counseling. That's how you're going to love one another. I'm going to do whatever it takes to love you right in spite of all my triggers and all my stuff. Father, I know that you're getting ready to do something amazing, but it's not about us. It's so that the world can see how much you love and you want us to invite all those that you've dreamed of becoming your children, even the most cantankerous and lovable people, even the ones that have done horrendous things in their lives, you want us to be you to them. Help us to offer our families unconditional love. Help us to offer our world that unconditional love. And as we learn about this over the next few weeks, God, let this be explosive leading up to Easter, as we celebrate you rising from the dead, let people know, hey, he's still alive and real because I see some kind of miracle in my neighbor, in my father, in my mother, in my teenager, my coworker. Come kingdom of God upon us. Be done, will of God, over us. Let nothing stop what's coming in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, community of faith.